1 Kings chapters 10 and 11. And if you're unfamiliar with Solomon, uh, he's one of those larger than life people in the Bible. He's the king of the nation of Israel when it is at its peak. It's doing the best that it had ever done. It's the largest it had ever been. Uh, it's the richest it had ever been. It was a time of great peace. And he's sitting on top of, of all of it as the king. His father was the very famous King David, right? So he's, he's got a lot of credibility with the people because they all loved his father. So they all uh, loved Solomon. And uh, he does some awesome stuff. He, he builds the temple in here. And if you would have asked me uh, a month ago how I felt about Solomon, I would have told you he's... He Pretty good. Uh, overall, great, great life. In fact, uh, let me read to you what it says in 1 Kings 3.3 3, when the author highlights Solomon's life. At, at the beginning of, of his reign, it says this about him. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. And again, I would have given Solomon glowing reviews from what I knew about him. Uh, he, he's rich. He's leading the people. He, he says right here, he loves God. On top of that, he has an encounter with God where God says, ask me anything. What, what do you want me to give to you, Solomon? And I'll give it to you. And Solomon does a great thing. He says, God, please give me wisdom. And God was pleased with that. He said, that's a, that's a good answer. I'm going to give you so much wisdom, Solomon. You'll be the wisest king who's ever ruled uh, and the wise, before and, and wiser than any king that rules after you. He, he's a respectable individual. And yet we turn to the end of his life and the story changes quite significantly. Look look down uh, in verse 6 of chapter 11. uh, Chapter 11, verse 6. And this is how it highlights Solomon's life. It says, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Now that phrase, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the Bible does not use that phrase lightly. If you go through all of First and Second Kings, it only ever uses he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord to describe the most wicked, terrible, awful kings. You have to think, well, what did Solomon do that was so bad? I don't, what did he do that was so evil? Well, if you look at the preceding verse and the following, this is what it says in verse five. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse seven, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with these pagan gods, uh, Molech is a god that every other instance in the scriptures that he's mentioned, it says people would give a child sacrifices to him in the fire. That's how they worship Molech. For the god Chemosh, we have uh, examples of people doing uh, similar things as means of that's how they worshipped him. The god Ashtoreth that he was mentioned here, uh, she's the same as the god Asherah mentioned throughout the Bible. Who, the, the way you worship her is through gross sexual immorality. That, that's how, how she's worshipped. And Solomon doesn't merely tolerate these things and kind of turn a blind eye to them. Uh, no, he actually encourages them. And he builds places for them to be worshipped at. I want you to come worship these gods with me. He participates in it. So he, he started off so well, and he ended so poorly. What went wrong? How did Solomon get to that point? Verse 4 here in chapter 11 gives us a good clue. 
When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from the, to, from the Lord to other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Solomon's heart wasn't wholly true. He, he loved God, but it was a divided heart. He didn't only follow after God. He, he followed other things as well. And, and my suspicion is, that many of us in this room have divided hearts similar to Solomon. That we, we say, yes, we want to follow after God, but there's a few other things that we'd also like to follow after as well at the same time. And so this morning, I hope to take a, a little bit of a, a spiritual EKG on our hearts to see, uh, do you have a divided heart or do you have a heart that's wholly true after God? So we're going to see three signs in Solomon's life and that could be true in ours as well, that you have a heart that is not wholly true to God. And the first one is this, your heart can't separate from the culture. I read you a verse at the beginning of Solomon's life a minute ago, uh, 1 Kings 3, 3. I only read half of it to you though. Let, Let me read the other half. It said, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. It was good. He loved God, except for this one thing that he was also doing. Now, if you're unfamiliar with high places, uh, that's just basically the location that all the different peoples of, of around Israel at the time, that's just how they, they worshiped their gods. The idea being, if, if you want to worship a God, uh, you should maybe get closer to him. And since the gods are above us, let's get higher. And so they'd find mountains or hills and then get to the top of them. And then on top of that mountain or hill, they would also build a little altar or a platform, a raised platform they could walk up to on steps. And now they're really close to their God. And then however uh, they worship their particular deity, they would do it there at the high places. There were also high places located in valleys and such for convenience, but they were still raised platforms. You could be a little bit higher and, and worship your God. And this was common. This is how everybody did it. If you had a deity you wanted to worship, then get, get to the high place and, and go do it there. And so Solomon finds himself doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. The problem was God has specifically forbidden him doing that thing. I'm going to read a couple of times from the book of Deuteronomy. And for our purposes this morning, Deuteronomy is a little bit of a book that lays out the rules for how Solomon should be reigning, how he should be the king. And so this is what it says uh, in Deuteronomy 12, Two through four. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their God and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But for Solomon, he thought, well, this is, it's just how everyone, how everyone does it. If you're going to worship your God, you go to the high place. And, you know, we won't worship their gods. I I won't do that. But I'll just go to the location that's typical for worshiping gods. And and maybe we can worship God there. Everyone around us is doing this, God. Now, if you ever hear yourself saying something like, everyone else is doing it, uh, you should consider who the everyone you're referring to is. And we know specifically who Solomon's everyone was. Uh, Look down again in chapter 11. Verses one and two, it says this in First Kings. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, 
Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. Now, now God isn't against interracial marriage here. He is, however, against interreligious marriage. And he doesn't want you to marry people who worship different gods and all those nations did. And so he says, don't bring that into my land. Don't, don't have the people whose relationships you are the closest with be people who worship false gods. And so when Solomon says, everyone's, everyone's doing it, this is what's normal. It's because he surrounded himself with this type of everyone. And it's easy when it's not our culture to look at someone else's culture and the things that are typical for them and say, that's bad. Why are they doing that? I can't believe they would do something that's, that's evil like that and think of it as normal. A couple of examples are things like for uh, literally hundreds of years in China, they practiced a foot binding for women. And basically they would, they would crush women's feet by binding them incredibly tightly so the bones were broken and they had absurdly small feet that made it difficult to walk because it was thought to be beautiful. But it was, it was torturous and, and punishing to women, whether they wanted it or not. And we look at that and say, that's terrible. Why would you do that? But for all them, it's, it's what we do. It's just normal within that culture. Uh, other examples are for a long time in, in India, uh, if, if a woman's husband died, she would have to perform sati, which is uh, when the husband was burned on a funeral pyre, she had to jump on it with him. Whether it was voluntary or not, that's what happened. And we look at those things and say, that's terrible. Why would you, why would you do that? Well, and that's what we do in, in our culture. Around the world, you see other things like that. Lots of cultures practice polygamy and we think that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, they pray to the spirits of their ancestors thinking they have spiritual powers to help them. Uh, they sacrifice things to demons to try and control uh, the spiritual world. They, they go to witch doctors to uh, put curses on their enemies. And we look outside from our culture and say, those things are so wrong. Why would you do that? But when there's things inside our culture, we're incredibly blind to them. We think that's just what everyone does. It's, it's, it's normal. That's how we... So we act around here. And that's what Solomon thought. Look, this is what's normal in our culture. This, I don't see the problem with it. But actually, the, the word of God telling us not to do that, that's the thing that seems problematic. Like, what, what, this is really ridiculous that it would tell us not to do these things that are very, very typical. And, and even when the word of God is explicitly against something, we think, no, it's, it's typical. It's normal. Everyone around us is doing this. And so the word of God might say things to us today that are very straightforward. Hey, don't get drunk. And yet we think that's, I mean, everyone's doing it a little bit. That's the thing that everybody kind of engages. It's popular, it's common. I don't see the big deal. Or the Bible might say, don't set a wicked thing before your eyes. And it's very clear. And yet, well, it, basically every movie that comes out now has some nudity in it. It's just the way it is. It, it, we learn to deal with it. It's fine. I'm sure it's not a problem. Or the Bible might call you to, to dress modestly. And we think that's so ridiculously old-fashioned. If I obey that, I'll look stupid to everyone. And, and it'll be awful. And no one does that anymore. And, and our culture has become blind to these things that are so clearly laid out. Our, our hearts want to follow God. Solomon's heart wanted to follow God. But yet at the same time, we, we want to follow what the, the approval of our culture. It's, it's divided. 
And so we see that in ourselves, that our hearts are often divided because we can't separate from the culture. Now, chasing after things that you shouldn't is only one way that we expose our divided hearts. Failing to follow things that we should, that's another way. And the second sign that you might have a divided heart is that your heart knows what to do and doesn't do it. Now, if you lived in Solomon's time, let me tell you, he would have been the best mentor. He had such brilliant wisdom and then seemed to always know what to say or do at at any situation. If you read the book of Proverbs, he, he wrote so much of that book and there's so much wisdom in the book. This is brilliant. He understands the culture. He understands the way the world works and he responds well. We actually did a series earlier this year uh, called Wisdom in This World, reading his Proverbs and finding out how how to live. He, He knew what to do, but there was one person who just refused to follow Solomon's advice and that was Solomon. He he knew what was right. He, He knew what to do and he didn't do it. And the author of 1 Kings helps us by exposing that very clearly. I'm going to go back and read to you a portion of, of Deuteronomy again. Remember, I said it's kind of the rules for what the king should be, be doing. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 17, verses 15 to 17. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt and to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So through three pretty straightforward uh, rules that it's giving there for how the king should act. One, don't go get many horses from Egypt. I think the idea being you would, you would trust in military power and not in, in God. The second one, don't get many wives for yourself. And this is specifically said, because if you do, your heart will be turned away from God. The third one, don't have excessive silver and gold. Again, the idea might be you would, you would trust in your riches and your wealth instead of trusting in God. So three rules very clearly laid out for the king. Now let's see, how does Solomon do with each of those rules? In 1 Kings 10 and 11, first uh, look at chapter 10, verse 26. It says, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 28. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. A very oddly specific detail to include. Don't get horses from Egypt. Maybe that's what I'll do. Strike one against Solomon. Number two, uh, look at verse, chapter 11, verse three. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wife turned away his heart. Now, I don't know what your definition of many is. (laughs) I feel like a thousand probably qualifies. And it happened exactly as was predicted. Uh, If you have many wives, they'll turn away your heart. And the author says he had many wives and they turned away his heart. That's strike two in doing what the king is supposed to be doing. Uh, Number three, look at chapter 10, Verse 14, it says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Every year, he's pulling in that many talents of gold. Now, I did the math for you. A talent is about 75 pounds. And so each year, he pulls in about 50,000 pounds of gold or 137 pounds every day. That's an equivalent of $4 million of gold every single day he was bringing in. 
And then it says that that's not even besides that which came from the explorers and the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and the governors of the land, he made even more than that. Jump all the way down to verse 27. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. You see silver lying on the ground, no big deals everywhere. I'm not that concerned about it. I, I would say that might be excessive silver and gold. Strike three against Solomon. And why are these things all written so closely together and so clearly the opposite of what Deuteronomy said? The author's showing us Solomon knew what he was supposed to be doing and he was doing the opposite. He'd heard the law of Deuteronomy. He knew what he was supposed to do, but he thought he was somehow the exception. And in fact, I'm convinced that our, our churches are filled with people who are similar. We know what we're supposed to do. We simply don't do what we know we're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, I, I firmly believe that some people should be attending less classes on Sunday mornings and less Bible studies because every week we go and we learn more about what the Bible says. We learn more about who God is, what these words mean. It's interesting you hear about the background of the different stories of the Bible and the locations and what all those people mean and the different nations. You learn so much. And then you walk out of class and you're not one bit different. You haven't been changed. God's word that's meant to transform you does nothing. And the only thing that has actually happened to your heart is that you've got more used to hearing God's commands and not doing them. And your heart's being hardened each week. Now, I love classes. I love studies. Part of my job here as the pastor of adult discipleship is to, to oversee them, to make them effective. And, and I want them to be good, but I don't want them to be just information transfer. I want people's hearts to be transformed. And so I want you to consider if you're going to a class or a study somewhere, is your heart being transformed each week? Can you see tangible results of how you are living and acting differently? And if not, it could be that your heart is just being hardened as you learn more of what you're supposed to do and don't do it. Solomon's heart was divided because he was content to feel godly and look godly without actually being godly. It's, it's deceptive. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And the last phrase is key, deceiving yourselves. It wasn't that someone should have said, well, maybe we just tell Solomon uh, Deuteronomy, read it to him one more time. He knew what it said. He didn't need more information. He needed a heart that would follow it. And we often fall into that same trap of just keeping up appearances. That points to the third sign of someone whose heart is divided. And that is if your heart pursues its own glory and not God's glory. I mentioned earlier, Solomon, he famously built God's temple and it was a magnificent structure. It wasn't the biggest temple uh, in the world at that time, but the complex, the foundations it was built on and, and all the, uh, the storage and altars and things around it, it was actually the biggest temple complex in the world. It was magnificent, incredible feat that he was able to build this thing uh, so long ago even. But the author of 1 Kings again highlights something to make us realize there's something fishy going on here. 
If you read at the end of chapter six in verses 37 and 38, talking about his constructing the temple, it says, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid and the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building. It took him seven years to build this temple. It was incredible. The very next verse, the very next verse, chapter seven, verse one says this, Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished the entire house. I, I love God. I want him to have a great, incredible temple. I'll spend seven entire years on it. But then my house, I, I really want that to look good. The people are gonna come visit from other countries and see me. I want them to know how great I am. 13 years. I'll spend 13 years on my own house. He was concerned for his, his glory. Uh, look in the passage that you have open, chapter 10. Verse 23 through 25 says this, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver, gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules so much year by year. And we read that and we've become a culture that's uh, so used to uh, glorifying yourself and advancing yourself that we don't bat an eye. In fact, we think, way to go, Solomon. You did it. Everybody's coming to hear you. Everybody respects you. They're sending gifts to you. You're on the top of the world, Solomon. But what was his responsibility? As the king of God's people, he was to be pointing people to God. And all the things he's receiving don't belong to him. People should be coming from all over to hear God's wisdom, to hear what God has to say. Uh, people should be hearing about the renown of God as a result of Solomon's work. And they should be bringing gifts to God. And yet all of that comes to Solomon instead. And he shrugs and says, it's fine by me. If Solomon would have perhaps stepped back and taken an inventory of where he was spending his time the most, uh, where he was spending his, his efforts and all his gold and money the most, I, I think he could have been, it could have been objectively clear. Seven years, 13 years. He, he could have seen, it looks like I'm more concerned for myself than I am for, for God's glory. And I want to invite you to step back and take a sim similar inventory of your own life. Where are you, is your money, time, and effort spent? Uh, God said where your treasure is, is where your heart is also. So if your heart's divided, it could be these things that you're spending as, as treasure, the things you love that you give your energy, attention, time to, that, that might be where your heart really is. You, you could be someone who says all the time, I never, I never seem to be able to find a moment away to a time to study God's word. It's difficult, I'm busy, and yet you have time to remodel your kitchen. Or you might say, look, getting, getting a quiet place to pray and getting away to spend time with God, that's almost impossible. My life is, is very busy, but you do make it to the gym for an hour every day. Maybe, maybe serving in church for an hour each week seems like a, a huge commitment. Like, I don't, I'm not ready to, to commit to that type of thing. But uh, putting in 15 hours of overtime this week to get a little extra spending cash is something you could do. And if we take the inventory of where we're spending our time and energy and money, we can see maybe my heart is more divided than I thought it was.
pursuing my gain and my glory and, and not pursuing God's. But we're happy to say that we love God as long as he doesn't ask us to also give up these dreams we have for ourselves and the things that we want to chase after. It's a heart divided. I believe it's, it's intensely clear through this survey of Solomon's life that he did have a heart divided. And these three signs point to it. And I expect that it's probably clear to each of us in this room that we likewise have hearts divided. In one of these ways, maybe all three of these ways, our hearts are not wholly true to the Lord. And, and so the question that must be asked as a response is, uh, how does God respond to divided hearts? What does God do when he sees a divided heart in us? In Solomon's life, it was, it was really clear. I don't believe it's on the screen, but you can look in chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. This is what God sees his divided heart, and, and he gets what it deserves. Verse 9, it says, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing. They should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. All the things that he had that were his glory, God says, I'm going to take those from you. And if you know the story of Solomon, his divided heart led to a divided kingdom. And when his son became the king, the nation of Israel literally split in two. And the rest of Kings is the, the documenting of, of how those people were plagued by the same things that Solomon introduced. Worshiping idols, having hearts that were not true to God, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He set the stage for all of this. And there was incredible consequences for him and for the people after him that eventually get exiled and conquered and many people died. That, that's what a divided heart deserves. It's where does that leave us? If we have divided hearts, what, what will we get? I want to turn to one more passage this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And in, in Hebrews 10, uh, it's, it's how, how does God respond to people with divided hearts? We can see it here as the author quotes the book of uh, Ezekiel, or excuse me, Jeremiah. And and this is what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 16. God sees our divided hearts and he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put, I'll put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God looks at our divided hearts and he knows that it deserves punishment and wrath. That would be just. And yet he says, I'm going to fix the hearts. I'm going to change them. I see these people and I love them. I want to I give them new hearts. And that punishment that they deserve, I'm going to forgive it. I'm not going to remember it anymore. And we might recognize the divided heart in ourselves and, and feel like this gives us reason to run from God. Don't go near God. Just turn entirely away from him. We have divided hearts. I don't want to be, be punished like this. And, and, or it's a reason you think to be ashamed of yourself and say, I, I'm not a good person or a good Christian. God doesn't want anything to do with me. And yet I think we're forgetting what Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
Because in verse uh, 19, it says this in Hebrews, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Instead of running from God because we don't measure up, he says, come closer, draw near, come to me with that, that true, sincere, whole, undivided heart that I'm going to give you. I, I've, I've sprinkled it clean. I've washed it. I, I change hearts. And so I want you to come to me. Je- Jesus dies on the cross for divided hearts like ours. Not only for hearts that are perfect and wholly true, he, he, de- he dies for divided ones. He, he takes the punishment. The reason that God can say, I, I forgive them and the, their sins are, are not remembered anymore is because Jesus took them. And he took those divided hearts on himself and bore the punishment they deserved. And it's removed from us. And then he says, come to me. I want to make it new. Uh, do you have a heart that, that struggles to separate from the culture? Come to me. I'll, I'll give you a new one. And I'll help you be wholly true to me. Do you have a heart that knows what to do and simply doesn't do it? He says, come to me. I, I soften hardened hearts. Don't run. I, I want you to come to me because of what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, do you have a heart that seeks its own glory more than God's glory? He says, perfect, come to me. And I'll free you from that burden of trying to build your own kingdom. Our, our divided hearts are like shackles on us that we can't seem to accomplish anything because we're split in two directions. And and Jesus says, I want to free your hearts. Bring them to me. Don't wait until you feel your heart is perfectly true and you've got everything right and then go to God. He says, no, that's not going to happen. Come to me while it's still divided and I'll be the one that fixes it. I, I pray that this morning, God has exposed your heart to you. And I pray that you recognize it's divided and not wholly true. But I also pray that that causes you to want to run the Jesus to fix it all the more and ask him to be the one who unites our divided hearts. It was said that David's father did have a heart that was wholly true to God. And so as I close this morning, I want to pray the words of Psalm 86 that David wrote, asking God, to unite his heart. Let's pray. Um, Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They'll bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I'll praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I'll, I'll glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You've delivered me from the depths, from the realm 
of the dead. Father, you have delivered us from the death that divided hearts lead to. Thank you for Jesus Christ, Father. I pray that you would give each of us here an undivided heart so that we would fear your name, that we would rely on your faithfulness. And when it happens, we'll praise you, God, and you'll be the one to get the glory, not us. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ who changes hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen.